So Judges chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us, not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they argued with him violently. So he said to them, What have I done now compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God handed over to you Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. How was I able to, what was I able to do compared to you? When he said this, their anger against him subsided. Now chapter 8 begins right where chapter 7 left off. There we saw that while the once powerful Midianite army was in full retreat, Gideon sent messengers to the tribe of Ephraim to ask for assistance. He asked for assistance to cut them off in their retreat. Now upon answering the call, uh, the Midianites captured two of, the, of Midian's field commanders and killed them. Here now we see that instead of celebrating alongside Gideon and the other tribes that were involved, the Ephraimite leaders rebuked Gideon for not asking him to be involved earlier. Now from the tone of their accusation, it's difficult to tell whether they're angry with Gideon because, because of this or because he had kept them in the dark about what he intended to do. In any case, here were the facts that disturbed them. The, Ephraim, the Ephraimites had not been summoned initially. Also, they were not involved in the primary route of Median. They were called upon only at the last minute when it appeared that the enemy might escape through their territory. Now, all these facts are, interpret are interpreted as more than a snub, and they felt deeply offended. The way they saw it, Gideon's actions had undermined their belief that they were the lead tribe of all Israel. Now, the way Gideon wisely responded shows us the kind of diplomacy he used to diffuse an extremely tense situation. First, with a rhetorical question, he minimizes his role in comparison with, the, in comparison with theirs. Second, he flatters the tribe of Ephraim by using a metaphor of harvesting grapes. Now Gideon claims that even the leftovers of Ephraim's harvest are better than the full harvest of his own clan. Third, he acknowledges that um, God has rewarded their contribution by giving them the real trophies. And what were those real trophies? They were the Midianite commanders of Oreb and Zeb. Fourthly, he minimizes his, pers his personal role a second time, but this time with a greater emphasis. Gideon's flattery had soothed Ephraim's pride by giving them the recognition they felt they deserved, and as a result, the anger of the Gideonites had subsided. Now, had he not been able to do this, had he not been able to uh, calm the Ephraimites, it would have caused more problems, it would have caused more issues. They would have had to now deal with the Ephraimites 
and the Midianites. So it just would have been a sticky situation. So he had to say the right thing. He had to do what, he had to use the right words to calm the whole situation down. It would have hindered the work that God had enabled him to accomplish. Now for any Christian wanting to be involved in ministry, the strongest opposition moving forward with that, with your plans, with what you're being called to do, may come from other Christians. Now when this happens, it's important that we be wise like Gideon and avoid acting like Ephraim. You see, Gideon could have called out the Ephraimites. He could have said, you know what, this is what God has called me to do and who are you to undermine what God is trying to do and, and you're nothing. He could have done that. He could have called them out um, for their foolishness and making a case for everything that he was doing. But he didn't. He knew, he, didn't, he knew that he wasn't trying to make the situation worse. See, he had all the evidence he needed that this was what God had called him to do. But he knew that they didn't care and, he, and it wasn't what they wanted to hear. You see, even if he would have told them that, it still wouldn't calm them down. They still would have been angry. They still would have been upset. They still would have been offended that they weren't involved earlier. So instead, instead of fighting, instead of arguing, instead of, you know, just ignoring, even ignoring them, he chose to take a different route by telling them what they wanted to hear and thus avoiding burning an important bridge that was going to be necessary later on. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. If you're wanting to be involved in ministry, or if you are in ministry, when you're being challenged by another believer for doing something you know and believe is God's will, make an effort to just de-escalate the situation. Don't make it worse. Don't argue back. Follow Gideon's example of just listening to what they're saying, acknowledging their concerns, and giving them the respect and the, cr and the credit they deserve. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.3, do nothing at a rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. You see, by doing this, by making peace, by not um, fighting with that brother or sister, you're obeying Jesus' command to love one another. Now to avoid becoming like Ephraim, be aware and the condition of your own heart. Now there were a couple reasons the leaders from the tribe of Ephraim had gotten so upset with Gideon. First of all, they were jealous that it was him, not them, that was leading this uprising. If you remember back in um, Chapter 6, verse 15, Gideon was considered a nobody. He was the youngest of his family, and he was the, the smallest of his tribe. 
And so now this Ephraimite uh, tribe sees this apparent nobody, and now they're like, well, well, why him? They're jealous. They're jealous of, of, of what God is doing in his life. The other thing too is, uh, by believing they were more important and better than all the other tribes, their pride became apparent. You see, if, they, if, if, if it wasn't the case, Gideon wouldn't have needed to flatter them. He wouldn't have needed to say these words to them. But because they were so prideful, because they were, they were feeling like they were the bomb, the best, you know, tribe. Gideon was like, all right, you guys are. You guys are the best. You guys are better than us. Can we just move forward? It's these two sinful attitudes, pride and jealousy, that are usually the reasons why someone is preventing, prevented from fulfilling a work God has called them to do. It was the pride and jealousy of the religious leaders that tried to prevent Jesus from ministering and ultimately led them to have him crucified. They were jealous and they were prideful. They thought they didn't and no one else had the right but them to, to, to speak matters of truth. Mark 15.10 says, uh, and this is speaking about Jesus, for he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. When someone confronts and challenges you for doing something that God has called you to do, it may be possible they're doing it out of pride and jealousy. If this is the case, arguing with them will get you nowhere. It'll get you nowhere and you may end up burning a bridge that you might, that might be useful later on. Romans 14.9 says, says, So then, we must pursue what promotes peace and builds up one another. And here's another thing. If you're considering challenging someone else's decision, if you're if, if, if you see that God is doing something in someone else's life and you're like, man, why them? And, and you're, something is bothering you inside about what, what they're doing for the glory of God. Consider checking your own heart. See what's going on there. Ensure that you're not confronting them, that you're not having these feelings because you're jealous and you're prideful. It says in James 3, 14 through 16, but if you have bitter en envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder of every kind of evil. Evil. Now, after having taken care of this problem with Ephraim, after he, that situation was, was calm, Gideon was now able to refocus on his primary mission of going after and destroying the Midianites. So let's read on and see and, and read about that.
Judges chapter 8, verse 4. Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give some loaves of bread to the people who are following me, because, because they're exhausted. For I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the prince of Zukoth asked, Are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Gideon replied, Very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmunna over to me, I will trample your flesh on thorns and briars from the wilderness. He went from there to Punuel and asked the same thing from them. The men of Punuel answered just as the men of Sukkoth had answered. He also told the men of Punuel, I will return in peace. When I return in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and with them was their army of about 15,000 men, who were, all, who were all those left in the entire army of the Kedemites. Those who had been killed were 120,000 warriors. Gideon traveled on the caravan, caravan route east of Noba and Jogaba and attacked their army while the army was unsuspecting. Ziba and Zalmunna fled and he pursued them. He captured those two kings of Midian and routed the entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle of the ascent of Heres. He captured a youth from the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him. The youth wrote down for him the names of 77 princes and elders of Sukkoth. When he went to the men of Sukkoth, he said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna. Zalmunna. You, you taunted me about them, saying, Are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men? So he took the elders of the city and took some of the thorns and briars from the wilderness and he disciplined them there and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. He also tore down the tower of Punwell and killed the men of the city. He asked Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill in Tabor? They were like you, they said. Each resembled the son of a king. So he said, they were my brothers the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, get up and kill them. The youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Ziba and Zalmunna said, get up and kill us yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up, killed Ziba and Zal Zalmunna, and took the crescent ornaments that, ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Having calmed now the leaders of Ephraim, Gideon continues in pursuit of the Midianite army. However, before his goals are accomplished, the author uh, tells us more, tells us about some additional obstacles that he faced and that he must eventually deal with. We learn that Gideon and his band of 300 men had been in pursuit of the remaining Midianite army, along with their two kings, 
Ziba and, Zalmu and Zalmuna. Now as they pursued them, as they went after them, that adrenaline of that initial batter, battle had begun to war off. And soon enough, the exhaustion and the hunger kicked in. And as any good leader would do, any good military commander would do, anybody that was going to be looking out for his troops, he goes out to the neighboring cities, cities where uh, they were friendly to the Israelites. Actually, these were cities that were controlled by the tribes of Israel. And so he went to these towns, he went to these cities, and just asked them for help. Hey, you know what, my troops are need them. He arrives in Sukkoth and, and Penuel and asks them, asks their leaders for some help. But what did they do? They, they rejected them. In both times, in both cities, Gideon's request was refused because those leaders in those two cities doubted the chances of Gideon's little band they doubted that his little band of 300 men would be able to defeat a much bigger Midianite army. Although this army was in retreat, they still didn't think that Gideon's army was going to be able to defeat this bigger army. And on both occasions, when he was rejected, Gideon vowed that he will return one day to repay them for their lack of hospitality and refusal to help them in his time of need. The story then jumps to inform us of where the two Midianite kings had retreated to and that their once powerful army had now dwindled to only 15,000 men. Now the only information were given about the route that Gideon and his 300 men took was that uh, the only information were given was the route that they took and that they attacked these 15,000 men by surprise. They weren't suspecting it. Ziba and Zalmuna tried to escape but were captured and had become Gideon's war trophies for everyone to see was complete after it was done who do you think were the first to see these trophies from Gideon or Gideon's trophies yep that's right it was Sukkoth the cities of Sukkoth and Penuel after capturing a young official from the city of uh, from the city of Sukkoth he's able to get the names of the elders of that city and so when Gideon arrives, after winning this battle with these two kings, he keeps his promise and disciplines those leaders in Sukkoth by striking them with this switch made of thorns and briars. If you've ever been hit by a switch, it's not a good feeling. I can't imagine what a switch would feel like with thorns and briars but he disciplined all his leaders in this way. Now a switch, if you don't know what it is, it's usually a stick. It's a long, it could be a, th a thin or a thick stick. And he used that to discipline them. He kept his promise. 
Now after, afterwards, when he, arrived, when he arrives in Punwell, he did exactly what he vowed that he was going to do there. He demolished the tower of Punwell and he killed their men. Now scholars believe that this city tower might have been the symbol of its power and possibly also a symbol of the religious and cultural identity. He destroyed it because that's what they were looking to as their identity. That was their, you know, that was essentially their place of worship. And so he was going to teach them a lesson by destroying it. And he did. He went back and destroyed it. Verses 18 through 21 tell us a few things that occurred before and before, during, and after the execution of these two kings. The first thing Gideon does is link their imminent execution to their treatment of his own brothers in a battle that took place in Mount Tabor. Gideon wanted this known and confessed before he executed these kings. The second thing Gideon does is he commands his son, Jether, to kill the two kings. Now, unfortunately, because of his age, because he was just a youth, because of his youthful fear, Jether, his son, is unable to go through with the execution. The last thing the author tells us is that Ziba and, and Zalmunna challenge Gideon to do the execution himself, to, you know, to, uh, to do it himself as proof that he was man enough to do it. They were challenging his manhood. They were saying, you do it. If you're, man, if you're a man, don't leave it up to a kid. You take care of it. Well, Gideon's not going to hesitate. He hated these guys. He knew what God had called him to do. And he complied with their request and killed them. And after he does so, he, what does he do? He goes to their camels and takes the crescent ornaments that were worn around their necks as victory trophies. Now, again, as I read this passage, I'm like, what can we learn from this? What, what can we take away from this? And I think, again, going back to, to ministry, anyone wanting to be involved in ministry, anyone wanting to, to, to help out a church or lead in a, in a certain kind of ministry. Here are just a few lessons we can learn from this passage. There will be times when ministry will get tiring. Now this is how Charles Spurgeon put it. If you, dear brethren, brethren and sisters, will give yourselves wholly to God's work, although you will never get tired of it, you will often get tired in it. If a man has never tired himself with working for God, I should think he never has done any work that has any worth doing. See, whatever ministry God has chosen you to be a part of, He will sustain and strengthen you. He will keep you going until the work is complete. But whenever a ministry, whenever you're doing anything for the Lord, 
whether even if it's just stacking chairs, even if it's um, greeting, if it's being done out of your own strength, if you're doing it out of your own abilities and you're not getting your strength from the Lord, it'll only be a matter of time before you're going to begin to feel like quitting or just giving up. Now, I do agree with Spurgeon. Those who've truly been called by God into ministry will never get tired of it, but you will often get tired in it. Ask anyone who's been in ministry for a long time, and they'll tell you that taking some time off, yes, it's good. Taking a break is good. Asking someone to teach in your place is good. Asking someone to, to take over for a just short amount of time, it's a good thing, it's a t and it, it can be refreshing. However, deep down inside, they know that they must continue to fulfill the work God has called them to do. They just can't stay away. They know that the work isn't done, that God isn't finished with them yet. Whenever you begin to feel tired in ministry, there are a couple things you can do that have helped me. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning of why you wanted to get started or why you wanted to begin being involved in ministry. And remember how God called you and prepared you for it. Also, come before Him in prayer. There are times that I remember I would just fall on my face, on my knees, and just tell the Lord and ask the Lord, hey, Lord, help me. I need your strength. I need some encouragement from you. There's just so many things that are trying to distract me and trying to keep my mind off of you and trying to tempt me to walk, to, to walk away from ministry. Give me the encouragement I need, Lord. And yes, I, I, as I said, I come to Him in prayer on my face and ask Him for help, for strength and for encouragement. And also, what's helped me is, is go to God's Word. Go into the Bible. Go into what He has to say. The Bible, the Word of God is full of words of hope and encouragement. There's words, passages in there, stories in there that will strengthen you, that will encourage you. Passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 that say, each time he said, my power works best in weakness, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The second lesson we can learn from this passage is that there will be moments in ministry when others will deny your request for help. When Gideon punished the leaders from Sukkoth and Punuel, it was something that he took upon himself to do. We, however, when we're being treated this way, we're specifically told in Romans 12, 19, not to take revenge, but to leave vengeance 
to God. So whenever you ask for help and are denied or rejected, you must not lose faith and trust that He will send, that God will send the help that He knows that you need. The third lesson we can learn from this passage is that some people may not be ready to take on difficult but important responsibilities in ministry. Gideon thought he was helping his son, but he didn't realize that Jether, he didn't realize that his son wasn't ready to handle that task. And so too, before we ask anybody, before we go up to somebody and ask them to do something that may be hard, use wisdom, use discernment, figure out if they're mentally, emotionally, and spiritually mature enough to handle it. We must know a person's limitations. We have to understand their limitations and their strengths. You see, you may be causing them more, more damage than good by asking them to do something they may not be ready for. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, took time teaching and training his disciples, and he never asked them to do anything he didn't think he they were capable of. And a perfect example that comes to mind is, is uh, when he was walking on water and he asked Peter to step out. He wouldn't have asked Peter. Out of all the disciples, he asked Peter. And he, he wouldn't have asked him if he didn't think he was capable of, of it. The problem Peter ran into is he started, he kept his eyes off of Jesus. He took his eye, eyes off Christ and started looking around and he started worrying and he began to drown. But again, he didn't do anything. He didn't ask him to do anything that they weren't capable of doing. And so we must do the same with others who have a heart to serve. Okay, so now let's go back to our passage and see what God wants to show us. Let's finish off here. Verse, Judges chapter 8, verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Then he said to them, Let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder, now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we agreed to give them. So they spread out a mantle and everyone threw an earring from his plunder on it. The weight of gold earrings he requested was about 43 pounds of gold. In addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants, the purple garments on the kings of Midian and the chains on the necks of their camels, Gideon made an ephod from all of this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Prostituted themselves with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian, so Midian was subdued before the Israelites, and they were no longer a threat. The land was peaceful 40 years during the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel that is Gideon, son of Joash, went back to live at his house. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring. 
since he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and, and he named him Abimelech. And remember that name, because that name is going to come up in the, next, in the next chapter or so. Then Gideon's son, then Gideon's son of Joash died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizrites. When Gideon died, the Israelites churned and prostituted themselves with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the power of their enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, for all the good he had done for Israel. In this last passage, the author wants to reveal the tragic end. Or the, I'm sorry, the author reveals the tragic end to Gideon's legacy. After the defeat of the Midianites and their allies, the entire nations, all the entire nation asked Gideon that he and all his descendants be their, their king and their future kings. But what does he do? He refuses and says, no, we will not. The Lord will rule over you. You see, he understood that it was not his place to take the throne over Israel and that the Lord their God was to be their king, that he was, that he was king over Israel. And so after some time, Gideon now makes a request and asks each of them to give up one single earring from their spoils of war. When they gladly agreed, they, the amount of gold that was gathered weighed close to 43 pounds. And that's not even counting all the other ornaments that were mentioned. Gideon may not have wanted to be king, but throughout the rest of the story, we see that it appears that he wanted to live like one. With the gold ornaments, pendants, and chains, he makes an ephod. Now what's an ephod? It was like a shirt-like garment that was worn by the priest who served at the temple. And what does he do with it? He sets it up in his hometown of Ophrah. Now it may be that originally that the original intention in creating this ephod was his way of offering all this gold, all this wealth, all this money to Yahweh. He, wanted, he probably wanted to dedicate it all. It was his form of dedication to the Lord. But in the end, however, the beautiful and expensive ephod became a snare to Gideon, his family, and all Israel by leading them back into idolatry. This, the story of Gideon's rule as judge begins to wrap up in verse 28 by informing us of the final state of the enemy and the length of time the land was at peace. Before ending though, the author includes a short description of his return back home the birth of his many sons from his, uh, to his many wives, and the birth of a son named Abimelech. Now, despite Gideon's action with the ephod, and 
the idolatry that it caused. The last few verses of chapter 8 suggest that he played a part in restraining Israel's spiritual and moral decline. Because you see, the moment he died, and the nation reverted back to their evil ways. Now, three are specifically mentioned by the author. Firstly, the Israelites churned and prostituted themselves with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. The little translation of this means Lord, Baal of the covenant. And the name suggests Israel had transferred the covenant that they made with the Yahweh, made with the Lord, and transferred it over to this Canaanite god of Baal. Now secondly, the Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the power of the enemies around them. See, they weren't suffering from amnesia. It wasn't that they had, they had oh, we, well, what do you mean? We don't, we don't remember what Gideon did. We don't remember what Moses did. They weren't suffering from amnesia. Rather, they chose, they made a deliberate cho cho choice not to think about everything God had done for them, that God had saved them, how much God had saved them in the past. And thirdly, it says it did not show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, for all the good that he had done for Israel after Gideon had died. They treated his family like crap. They didn't show any respect for what he had done for them. And they just mistreated them. The story of Gideon is a good example of what can happen when, a, when Christian leaders, when Christians in general exchange God's agenda for their own personal agenda, for their own personal ambitions. Had Gideon continued to seek out God's plan instead of his own, I really believe there might have been more chapters dedicated to his achievements. Sadly, many of us have heard or seen Christian leaders who are no longer in ministry because they took their eye off the ball. They started strong, accomplished great things, and had so much God-given potential, but they allowed their personal ambitions to become a priority. Ministry went from humbly serving God and others to gaining more wealth, power, influence, and recognition for themselves. Every time I hear about another well-known pastor having to step down or be removed Due, some, due to some kind of failure, I'm reminded that I'm just as susceptible. I'm not immune, that it can happen to me if I'm not careful. You see, the devil knows me well enough to know how to tempt me. He knows that the moment I take my eyes off the cross, the moment I take my eyes off of Jesus, that's when I'll be the most vulnerable and he wants nothing more 
and to see another pastor fall. So that's why I make every effort to keep my eyes fixated on my Lord and Savior. That's why I keep, I can't lose sight of him. I can't lose sight of what he's done, the great works that he's done in my life that I've seen him do in other people's lives, what he's doing now. I keep my eyes fixated on him because I know that as long as I do, my focus will be on nothing else but him and on him alone. And what this does is that it reduces the chances of being disqualified from ministry. Yes, there are many factors that contributed to Gideon's spiritual decline. But I think the greatest one was that he became prideful. You see, somewhere along the way, he forgot that the sole reason for his success wasn't because of anything that he did, but rather what God did for him. The same can happen to us if we allow pride to creep in any time God blesses our lives and our ministry. When God starts doing great things, it's easy to say, to, to forget that he did them and then start saying, yeah, you know, it was... It was me. I did it. Or it was, if it wasn't for, for me doing this, then none of that would have happened. We, we forget to give God the credit. Why? Because we be, start to become prideful. James 1.17 tells us, Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything good that you have in your life, everything beautiful that you have in your life comes from God. He's given it to you. And just as easy as He gives it to you, He can take it away. If all good things come from God, then we must always give Him the credit and the glory that He deserves. Now as I conclude here, God, Gideon's story ought to remind us that God can and will use anybody to accomplish his will and purpose. And although we may not have ended, although he may not have ended well, he nonetheless is a good example of what trust, courage, and bravery look like when the odds are stacked, stocked, stacked against you. And we're also given more of an insight about how patient and gracious God is with the flawed people whom he chooses to use. I would also add that Gideon's story reminds us of, our, of the need, of our need, of a true savior who will deliver us from a much bigger enemy. Even after the victory of the Midianites, Gideon couldn't save his people from the sin and evil that was in, in their heart. So strong was this enemy so powerful was this enemy that even Gideon succumbed to it he became enslaved to this enemy well God now has provided a savior and his name is Jesus Christ he was able to accomplish what no one else could 
when he rescued, when he not only rescued us from our spiritual enslavement, but also delivered us from eternal death. Colossians 1.13 tells us that when we accept Jesus, when we accept what Jesus did for us, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. If you're seeking a Savior, if you're seeking the Lord this morning, look no further than the cross. It says in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. You have been healed by His wounds. He did it all. We are just His instruments. We are just His tools. We live our lives to want to be obedient to Him. Whatever it is the Lord has called you to do, do it to the best of your abilities, your God-given abilities. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Be careful of pride. Be careful of thinking that you're doing it all yourselves, of, of, of those selfish ambitions. And I hope I never get there. It's a scary thought. And the moment I, you know, I, I have people around me that if, if, if they see me beginning to, to act that way or be that way, you know, giving them already given permission to slap me. Because I never want to make this about me. It's never about me. It's always about the Lord. It's, it, it is, everything is about the Lord. Because see, it's not this, this church, this ministry. It's His, not mine. And if I'm gone, it's going to continue to be His. So we must remember that. And again, Jesus will not disappoint you. He will always be there for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for your word, for this story of Gideon, the lessons that we can learn from all the good he did, from his faithfulness to his doubts, to his fears. May we learn from these lessons. May we read them, study them, and see, Lord, where we are in our walks. Lord, we don't want to end up that way. We want to continue to be strong. But help us. We need your help, Lord. You give us the strength. You give us the encouragement. Let us never forget that. Lord, bless everyone here. Keep them safe wherever they may be, in their jobs, in their homes, in their schools. Continue to bless us. Continue to be in our lives. Continue to reveal yourselves, reveal yourself to us so that we may walk closer to you, Lord. Lord, bless us next time of fellowship. We love you and we praise you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.